This is an ABC podcast. Hi, I'm Rebecca Huntley. Welcome to the History Listen. Today, the first Chinese story published in Australia. It's really unique. It's a novel that gives a completely new perspective on Australian history, a Chinese perspective. And a discovery that has led a family to their missing grandfather. As far as we knew, my mother never knew her father and had no information about his life at all. The story's setting at the time of huge Chinese migration to Victoria's goldfields gives us a new understanding of the personal hardships that face these early immigrants. It also reflects a pivotal time in China's own history. It was a work of political propaganda, really, and the story didn't have any name associated with it. But after some digging, the author has now been uncovered and found to be a previously unknown grandfather. I really never thought we would be able to trace my mum's father. We're talking about the 1920s, 30s, 40s. Things were very secretive. It's almost like a ghost that's come back into the family. And today, the ghost of Wang Ping pays us a visit, with the content of his novel shedding significant light on the mystery of his life. I don't want to give away too much, but to put you in the picture. In 1909, a story was serialised in Melbourne's Chinese Times. Titled The Poison of Polygamy, it was a ripper of a yarn, but the author's name was never mentioned. The serial disappeared until it surfaced late last year. Sydney's Ma family, historian Michael Williams and translator Ely Finch take us from here. Victor McPheeve reads Wang Ping's story. The Poison of Polygamy Wang Shenghong was a native of Park Hung, Lingneng, Guangtong. He had a thin, sallow face. I gave up on looking to find the author. And a muddle way of speaking. And one could tell him at a glance to be a The discovery wasn't made until after the translation had been completed. And it was just a chance discovery at the final moment, really, that made it clear that Wang Shiping was the author. So his name is actually Wong, but of course what normally happens with Chinese Australian names is it gets reversed. People could never figure out that family names come first in Chinese. So he was known as Mr Shiping. I think I had a hunch that his given name Shiping would have been taken for a surname. So working on that assumption, I searched through the English language newspapers on Trove and came across references to people of the surname Shiping. So there was a marriage record. And that led to this discovery of a family. And then we realised there was a daughter, Bonnie Shiping, not Bonnie Wong. And then there was a marriage record of Bonnie Shiping marrying a Raymond Ma in Sydney. And well, there's a daughter marrying in the 50s. She could well have had children and children would still be alive. So suddenly we have this possibility that there's descendants, how to find them. And of course, the children's name would be Ma, M-A-R. And I looked up the white pages and found there were 45 Mars in New South Wales. And then the search began for the Mars and Dr. Michael Williams took that on. 
So I ring the first one, and the first one is Glenn Ma. It turned out to be the grandson. I'm Glenn Ma, fourth child of my mum, who was born Maud Shi Ping. My mum and dad practised as accountants at Ride. So he had Ride as a starting point, and the only other starting point was the surname Ma. I think he said, was your mother... Is your mother Bonnie Shi Ping? Was your mother's name Bonnie? And he said, yes. This person asked, am I my mother's son? And of course I said, yes, I'm my mother's son. (laughs) I said to him, do you know who your grandfather is? And he said, no. We have no idea who our grandfather is. And I said, well, he's a famous author. He was quite surprised. And he said, well, our mother never knew who her father was. One could tell him at a glance to be a treacherous and cunning type who had not a penny to his name. In that call, he told me my grandfather, my mother's father, who we knew nothing about, was the author of the first Chinese-Australian work of fiction. The first thing I did was send out this email to her everyone, and then uh, I can't remember who I called first, but it might have been Brother Philip. The whole revelation has blown my tiny mind anyway, you know, because we had no idea about any of these connections. Well, I'm Lee, actually my full name is Leanne, and I'm number three. We cannot read or speak Chinese, sadly. We're a product, I guess, of that kind of assimilationist world. Didn't really want us to learn Chinese and just got on with life in Australia. My mum very rarely ever mentioned her father. It was only when we, one of us explicitly talked to her. My sister interviewed her once. and she First, my mother told me that she never knew her father, that he had returned back to China, so she thought, before she was born. She grew up just assuming, you know, well, she really didn't have a father, didn't know him. That he'd gone back to China, they assumed he'd been possibly killed. When he left, did he intend to return? There's huge question marks when you only have facts on certificates. Here's a a marriage certificate. They were married in January of 1923. And then there's a daughter, my mother, born in February 1923. And that's all we know. It's this very lucky circumstance where we're able to find out family history facts just from this work of fiction. The Poison of Polygamy, part one, June 5th, 1909. The story begins with a preface from the author. Monogamy is the most perfect of systems, but China is a country of polygamy and consequently of gloomy boudoirs and extinguished happiness. The Republican movement in China was just beginning. The movement led by Sun Yat-sen that was aimed at the overthrow of the imperial order. The collapse of whole families is often heard of, and time and again bedchamber changes are the cause. He's very much using the novel as a tool to inform people about what needs to happen if China is to modernise. Hence, polygamy must be destroyed. Polygamy is old culture. Polygamy is a weakness of the culture. Modern nations don't have polygamy. In lament of this, I have chosen from village events the saddest and most tragic in order to cast a lens on society. So the author was out here writing this novel with the intention of drumming up support for a revolution.
Yes, we understand Wang Shiping arrived in Melbourne in 1908 when the Melbourne edition of the Chinese Times newspaper, Chinese language newspaper, was started. It's just interesting to think that this story is published 1909, 1910, and, and then you have the revolution happening in 1911. What happens in the diaspora is actually quite important to that. The hills and waters of Australia and America occupy the dreams of many a traveller-to-be. Sheng Hong was silent. After a pause, Ma spoke again. The other day, I heard a beggar woman say that my cousin has lately returned from the goldfields and is very wealthy. Ma pleaded for her cousin to take him to the goldfields. We know Wang Shiping's father did come to Australia during the gold rush, actually owned a gold mine. Over a period of time, we did realise that more and more it seemed to be very closely based upon his family. And his brother was already working and managing the Peking Cafe in Melbourne. So certainly he had the connections to come and get any job he wanted that his father or his brother could have arranged for him. He's a Christian pastor, he's a journalist, and he's also a member of the political party, of the Guomintang, the Nationalist Party. The fact that he chose to work at the newspaper, I think, is because he was educated and he wanted to be involved in something literary. The newspaper was running, but they were trying to reinvigorate it. And they thought that they would need to get some people who were here to spread the Republican message, the message of revolution. I think he was, at that stage, more interested in spreading the Republican message than the Christian message. I think that's why he was here. He thought to himself, my country has not developed its manufacturing or exploited its minerals. And in consequence, we poor are forced to risk death traveling to this remotest of isles, simply for the sake of our livelihoods. He tells a story and occasionally he interrupts the story with authorial asides. Swept thousands of miles by the pressure of poverty. His own personal views. Alas, the tragedy. The novel was intended to expose all the ills of traditional Chinese society and encourage people to look to modernising and see the need for revolution. Part 9, 14 August 1909. There was no boat to Australia for over 10 days. When the time arrived, the Kuangwing employee purchased Sheng Hong a sick pan and personally saw him aboard ship. What Sheng Hong boarded was a sailing ship, known in Kwangtung as a mast and yard ship. It rocked about. It's set in the Gold Rush era and written in that Federation era, Australia's Federation era. So these are two really important eras in Australia's history described from a Chinese perspective. The ship was about to dock. The whole hold was in commotion, as if a swarm of bees was exiting a hive. Seventy-something Chinese labourers filed out, clothes ragged, with bamboo cases on their backs. It's certainly a dramatic story, 
with lots of tragedies and ups and downs, and the main hero is an anti-hero. Ching Nam asked, Gentlemen, for what place are you headed? It's quite entertaining. I mean, there's blackmail and murder and opium dens and goodness knows what. We have merely heard that the gold deposits near Melbourne are good and wish to make for them. So they formed the group and set forth on their journey. They forded great waters, traversed wood and brush, scaled lofty mountain ridges and passed across long land bridges. Ants the size of wasps. They would climb up trousers and enter sleeves, their bites causing the skin to swell. Sheng Hong and Pan Nam sat, sobbing, deeply regretting the venture. The main character of the novel is not a great bloke. He's meant to be, you know, making mistakes. Yeah, so the character in the book has a wife in the village. He's married before he decides to go to Australia. He comes to Australia and he sends her money and he, and he goes and visits her. But then at some point after he's made more money, he decides to have a second wife. The second wife is younger and that causes him more problems. And everybody knew it was something that was a bit fraught. They argue about it and they debate it quite a lot in the novels. Alas, the path of wifehood is hard. One of the causes of this is the sorry state of women's rights. Where might there be found a woman's revolutionary army to beat the bell of freedom, strike the drum of awakening and erase the hierarchy that makes husbands superior and wives inferior? He was obviously a man of very strong convictions. What he's doing is terribly didactic. His tone is didactic. Alas, our country's women steadfastly endure without the slightest feeling of resentment, whatever insults and beating their husbands care to mete out. He looks at the wives, because in China polygamy was quite acceptable, that so wives were discarded and many fell on hard times. You know, I mean, obviously he was a revolutionary, but he was also a feminist. And I think about 1919-1920, he actually gained approval from Sun Yat-sen in China, the head of the Chinese Nationalist Party, to allow female members in Australia. So that's part of his belief in feminism and inequality. Quite amazing, really, when you think about it. Ma held Sheng Hong's hand and said to him sobbingly, the pressures of poverty forced my lord to make a sojourn far off in a barbaric wilderness. How can the love of husband and wife be severed so? What's wonderful about it is the emotion, the connection between him and his wife and that insight into their emotional lives, which is something that is fairly much absent from the historical record. Wang Xiping's father would have come to Australia in the 1850s. Periodically, he would have returned to China with his money, as did the characters in the book. Then that's when he would have fathered his children, including the author. But then he returned. Ma had said to Sheng Hong, You, Daddy, have today a very different family from before. Even if you will not think of me, you must think of this little baby. Wang Shiping, our author, he was born sometime in the 1870s. I imagine he would have had a fair understanding of what it would be like for his mother, a single woman, living at that time. His experience growing up in China with a father overseas 
and seeing his mother struggling. Weeping, she had covered her face with her hands, unable to look up. Ma's emotions on separating had been especially painful, beyond what the pen can describe. One of the most wonderful things about this novel is that it does give us a woman's perspective, which are very rare. We can only speculate on how these women felt, what they felt when the husbands finally returned. And in this case, we get a very clear imagining of what a woman felt, what she went through when her husband finally returned for the first time having been away for quite a number of years. For several hours she waited. Ma paced back and forth in her room, her state of desperateness. All she could do was grind her teeth in anger and resentment. You're with a history listen and the surprising story of Wang Shiping, the first Chinese novelist published in Australia, and historians are excited. At the time of writing, back in China, Sun Yat-sen's Nationalist Party, the Guomindang, was trying to overthrow the emperor, and in 1911 they succeeded. Wang Shiping's Australian story gives us a unique window into these events. Part 10. 21st August 1909. Our compatriots residing in this continent presently number over a hundred thousand, replied Pan Am. The Chinese community out here had witnessed the creation of a new democracy, Federation Australia, and that had obviously affected them and their thinking, and that really shines through. And it was overseas Chinese that were providing the financial and network support to help the Nationalist Party in its early days back in China. Wang Xiping actually was one of the founding members of the National, Chinese Nationalist Party in Australia. He did also travel to South Australia and Western Australia. That was under the guise of Church of Christ as a minister. And in doing so, he helped establish branches of the Chinese Nationalist Party in Adelaide and Perth. The diaspora were fundamental to the revolution. They supported it, they sent back huge amounts of money, and they were really the medium through which Western ideas were transmitted back into China. Well, one thing that's a common feature of Chinese life in Australia and many other countries is the uh, wholehearted support for the Guomintang. My mum talked about doing things to raise funds and so on. A few months on, they succeeded in collecting several thousand pounds. They then selected a strip of land in Melbourne's Bilu Park and constructed a grand, tall and spacious Yip Association building. Ellen Sam was 41 when she married Wang Shiping, who would have been in his late 50s. She was working in a boarding house, and so that presumably is where he met her. Ellen Sam was known as Sissy, that was her nickname. Now, we're talking about 1923. In January of that year, they were married in Melbourne. Mum's birthday was in February 1923. Later that year, December 1923, is the month when uh, Wang Shiping left Australia and didn't return. 
So he may have got her pregnant and then gone travelling and then come back to realise that she's pregnant. What am I going to do? And whether he was forced to marry her or whether he was decided, well, the best thing to do for her is not leave her as an unmarried woman and better to be at least married. You know, in those times, that would have been considered to be a better thing to do. She wasn't a young woman. It was a late marriage, certainly, for Ellen Sam. And then, obviously, then she was 41 when she had her one and only child, my mother, Bonnie Ping. The irony of a preacher who has apparently conceived mum out of wedlock, but he's writing to try to reform Chinese to be more like Western society. But Wang Ping has his private life, which you know, has these big question marks over you know, a preacher to have fathered the child out of wedlock. Now that we have accrued some wealth, said Ching Nam, I should like to make a trip back to our ancestral land. He abandons his wife and baby child in Australia when he returns to China in 1923. He was back in China for the Chinese Nationalist Party's inaugural conference. It takes time to cross the seas. Furthermore, men who live overseas are likely to be unable to stay for long. He went back to China to represent Australasia at the first national congress that was convened by Sun Yat-sen and which was attended by the political leaders from throughout the Chinese world. I mean, even Mao Zedong was present there. There were a hundred and something delegates and he was one of them. So he was an important figure. He was on personal terms with very prominent people, including Sun Yat-sen. I think his ambition was obviously much stronger than his devotion to a wife or wives, and he followed his political ambition. Perhaps, I suppose, in some ways, the bigger picture, and maybe, too, he thought, well, his wife and child were in Australia, which wasn't China, so hopefully they would be OK, and perhaps, you know, the family would support them, which is what happened. Sissy had to obviously work, and she couldn't take care of her daughter. So my mum, Bonnie, went to live with her cousins and aunt and uncle when she was about seven up in Bensdale. Whether he intended to come back to Australia, we don't know. As far as we know, he did not come back to Australia. We know he was still alive for many years after he left. I mean, it was at least a good 10 years from when he left his wife and child in Australia. We don't know whether he kept in touch with Sissy, my mother's mother, or completely just disappeared. Because the irony is that the poison polygamy is, you know, all about women's lot in China, in traditional China. I just find the whole thing to be extraordinary because you've got these huge histories, the Chinese revolution that formed Republican China, and, and you've got these little intimate histories of people caught and there's many contradictions there, but I think if my mother knew more of that history, it might have been bittersweet for her, perhaps, that, you know, she never knew him. I think my mum would, if she had received a call like that to find that what her father had done after he returned to China, I think she would have been incredulous at first, probably gobsmacked, but I think that she in time would look at the documentation and consider it. I think on the other hand too, it would be sad for her to think that her father had gone back to China and had lived, goodness knows, but it obviously the records show up to 1931. 
but no later than that, so we don't know whether he lived longer than that. There's no records of what he did after that, nothing. The question marks for us in the family are, well, in, in my mind, uh, was he a good person? Of course, we have to remember the times and the circumstances, but certainly my mother and her mother, it seems they weren't treated well by him. And whether that was justified by circumstances, we don't know whether he would have liked to have done more or whether the relationship with my grandmother was just a casual thing. We just don't know. Or whether it was meant more to him, uh, we don't know. There's no death notices. It was quite unusual for someone of that status, but it's unusual for him to just disappear from the record. You know, do you suspect foul play? No, who would know? It's a much richer family story that we have. He had a wife and child in Australia. How could you just go and leave them and never contact them, never return to them, never support them? Given the things he was passionate about, which was rights for women, <laughs> is totally contradictory to the opinions that he expresses in his novel, The Poison of Polygamy. The only speculation I would make, if he is like the character in the book, if the character in the book, the anti-hero, is actually himself, then that's just the kind of thing that person would have done, is just to scarp it off and not want it to come near them again and justify himself. And he would just be the typical hypocritical Christian minister that we, we are more than familiar with nowadays. But that's purely speculation. That's certainly one possibility, that he was just a weak person who didn't want to know about any potential family and didn't want to do what would have been considered to be the right thing. A strange idea of reality mirroring art if that happened. Alan Sam never remarried after Wang Shipeng returned to China in 1923, and she eventually died in 1950 in Melbourne from a stroke. We will never really know what she knew because she didn't tell us much. She may have held the cards close to her chest or she may not have known. The generation of my grandmother, Alan Sam, you know, things were not talked about and skeletons were left in the cupboard. The door was locked, not just shut. Whereas now, in our generation, you know, we're starting to unlock those cupboards and talk about the skeletons. There are files on him in the archives of the Chinese Nationalist Party in Taipei, and I would love someone to delve into them. Now, you know, we have this information I think in time that my family will probably take a pilgrimage over to his um, clan village because we all want to know where we come from. This is, this is who we are. Kong Nung, fearful of the threat posed by Arking's brazenness, evaded him by fleeing to the southern seas. And it is said, no word of him was ever heard thereafter. The novel will be hopefully the beginning of a much bigger story. I think a lot more stuff will come out, absolutely. The Surprising Story of Wong Shi Ping was produced by Ros Blewett. The sound engineer was Russell Stapleton. And for information about how to get hold of the complete story and some photographs of the man himself and his descendants, 
please head to our webpage at ABCRN's The History Listen. I'm Rebecca Huntley. Catch you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.